many of you know, uh, it feels like every, every day somebody we know close to us is, is experienced loss. And uh, this morning, Gloria Williams' mother passed away um, about 10, 15 this morning. Um, she's 91 years old, and, and I talked to Gloria, and she said that mom was ready. Mom's ready to go home. And so I just wanted to, to make you aware of that so you could pray for her. Um, and she's not the only one. There's much, much, many, many people who are suffering loss during this season. And so I just want to take a moment and pray for, for those in our, in our church family, in our faith family, um, and those in our community, and, and those that we know that are dealing with loss. So would you bow your heads with me? Heavenly Father, we thank you um, for those that have lost loved ones that that have the assurance that their loved one was a believer in you as gloria shared with me her mom was ready to go home and that we are just foreigners aliens on this earth lord that when we place our faith in you we have a new home a home with you but in that there's pain and there's suffering and there's grieving lord and i want to pray for those that have experienced that loss lord that you would comfort them that their hearts would be mended by you that you would continue to pour out your unconditional love on them Lord I just pray that you would just in a, in, a, in a world that just feels like mourning is increasing that you would fill our hearts with gladness because we know that joy comes in the morning and that we know that When we place our faith in you, we can look forward to coming home to you, Lord. So I pray that many people would come to know you through this time, Lord, and that their loved ones would come to know you and that they would have that faith and that hope that there is something else greater than this. But Father, I just pray for your comfort. In your name we pray. Amen. So we're going to finish our God Is series this morning. Um, I'm really excited about that. I know you are too. You're probably tired of watching that video. Uh, But uh, um, we're going to finish it this morning looking at the one thing that all of this points to. We started big with God's vastness, his infiniteness, his omniscience, his omnipresence. We brought it down and we looked at God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. Last week, John did an incredible job looking at God as holy. And we're going to bring it all together today to the one thing that when we all learn and come to know, it makes everything make sense. I want to introduce you to three men. These three men um, have had a profound impact on my life and on my ministry. On the left is a man named Gerald Rasmussen. On the top right is a man named Brad Johnson. And the bottom right is a man named Wade Morris. And they all have different roles in my life. Gerald served in my student ministry in Tulsa. He was a volunteer for me, a dear friend. Brad was my first boss in ministry. He hired me to be the junior high associate at the first church I served in. Gerald was literally the biggest man I ever met. He was like six foot eight, 350 pounds. If you've ever seen pictures of Andre the Giant's hands, I felt like Gerald could pick me up in one hand and wrap his hand around me, but he was the biggest teddy bear this world has ever known. He had the sweetest heart. Brad was almost equal in Gerald's stature. I I made this point, I'm a pretty big guy, right? And I've made it a point in my life to get close to men that are bigger than me, which is pretty amazing. It's 
like I could walk among the, the Philistines is what I, what I felt like. But, but Brad was, was, was just as tall. He was 6'6", six, 6'7". Six, 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 um, we shared an office uh, when we first got there. His desk was on one side of the room. Mine was on the other. And we, we talked about life, and we grew together. He was, he was twice my age at the time, and we, we just we didn't quite understand each other sometimes, but we, we grew together. We got our hands dirty with students coming to know Christ. Brad was an offensive lineman for the Univers- University of Nebraska back in the early 80s, and his Orange Bowl ring was bigger than my hand. And so... I got to learn what it meant to be small in stature next to these two men. Wade was a little bit different. Wade, we hung out. He wasn't near that big. He was actually smaller than me, quite a bit smaller than me. Um, And we only hung out for one weekend 15 years ago. I hired Wade to come in and speak at our Disciple Now as our our evangelist for the weekend. If you don't know what a Disciple Now is, it's a student retreat that they stay in homes around the city. Um, And we had like 160, 170 students at this Disciple Now um, and uh, uh, God showed up big time. Wade came in, and Wade preached, and 38 students gave their lives to Christ that weekend. Amen. It was an amazing weekend, and uh, I learned a lot about Wade from that, and we, you know, we only met that one time in person, but we've kept up over the years through email, through Twitter, um, and we've had several times that we actually were scheduled to be in the same place at the same time, whether it be a camp or a conference or just passing through, and for various reasons, our schedules changed, and and, and we never got to get back together in person. But, but like I said, each one of these men had a, had a profound impact on my life. First, they showed me what it meant to love their Lord. But they did it in their own way. They showed me what it meant to love the Lord in their own way. They showed me what it meant to love their families. Their love for the Lord came first and their love for their families came second. And each gave me a different piece of knowledge on ministry that I will cherish forever. But like I said, each, men of these, each of these men, most importantly, each one showed me in their lives that God is grace. And in that grace, they were alive because of that grace. And see, this is bittersweet for me because on May 9th, 2015, Gerald passed away. He left this earth. And I'll never forget, I was in a Target in Frisco, Texas, and I got a phone call. And Gerald was not supposed to pass away at that time, and he did. And, and not even when my grandparents passed away was I as visibly moved as I was when I heard Gerald passed away. I just started crying right there in the middle of Target because this man was such a wonderful man. Brad, on May 20th of this year, passed away. And this past Tuesday, Wade passed away from complications of COVID-19. Each one of them were in their 50s, an age that our world would say was way too soon. But here's the cool thing. Each one of these men left this earth knowing that by God's grace, they had somewhere to go. They had an eternal home, and they're getting to experience that. So what did they impart on me? Well, Gerald showed me God's grace by living his life in wonder. Gerald had a patented line that I loved to hear him say when he was amazed by something. I would tell him something that something cool that happened in a kid's life or something cool that happened in my life or or something that I discovered in the Bible or or anything and Gerald would look at me and be like oh my stars 
And it was just such a cool thing because you knew Gerald lived in this wonder of life that he could not believe that God was so amazing and God could do such amazing things. And in that Gerald living in that, he gave me the gift of encouragement. He knew that when times were really, really dark and I, and I was uh, uh, struggling with some really hard life lessons when it came to ministry at that time, Gerald never left my side. And he never left other people's side. He was a school teacher. He was a coach. He ran a ropes course for Tulsa School District. And he was always there that when someone's life was in a dark moment, he brought in the gospel of grace and showed us that's where the light was through the encouragement that poured out of his heart. And he lived in that light. Brad taught me about relationships. Brad taught me that relationships were just as filled with grace that the relationships with people were as filled with grace as my, just as my relationship with God was filled with grace. Brad and I did not see eye to eye. I remember we sat down with a student one time. Uh, Brad was in his late 30s. I was 23, 24 years old. And we sat down with a 17-year-old student who was not really going very far in life at that moment. You, you know these type students, right? They just don't have any real direction. I grew up in the city. Brad was a true Nebraska corn-fed boy. And he looked at this kid and he said, no man worth his weight sleeps past 7 o'clock in the morning. And I said, I'm sorry. <laughs> like, I apologized for the kid because I like to sleep past 7. And we didn't agree on that. We just, we just didn't agree. But in all of our times of disagreement in, in how the world was, we, 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 we were different generations. He showed me grace in those relationships. In fact... Brad has had many relationships throughout the years that I've been able to follow with and, and watch. And, um, and his love for building relationships with people is what drove his ministry. He was not the greatest speaker in the world. He was not the greatest um, leader or idea person. But he was the greatest at relationships and showing grace in those relationships. And the fact, when, when he passed away, he was doing what he devoted his life to. He was having dinner with a couple that was going through some marital issues and he was sitting down with them to teach them about grace to each other and with each other. And God called him home. Now, Wade, I said he was a little bit different. Wade taught me so much about how to preach. Wade is an amazing evangelist. He taught me how to put together a sermon. His best advice to me, I sat down with him, and I'm 23, 24 years old at the time, and I said, Wade, how do I preach? How do I prepare a sermon? And he looked at me and he said, all you got to do is know, well, know where you want to end. He said, start with your end, and it doesn't matter how you get there, just get to it. But if you know where you want to end, that's all that matters. In my end today, I'm going to start with where I want to end. God is grace, and because God is grace, we are alive. But the thing about it is Wade taught me a lot about preaching as far as preparing and speaking, but he also taught me a lot about preaching and ministry and about grace through the ministry because Wade was the most humble preacher I've ever met. Wade did not feel worthy to stand on a stage and preach the gospel. So much so that Wade never wore shoes when he preached. And a lot of churches were like, 
what? I remember my church when we first brought him in. He had to explain every time he was preaching somewhere new, he had to start off by explaining why he did not wear shoes when he preached. And it was because he was so in awe and humbled of the calling that God had placed on his life to preach the gospel that he felt this was holy ground. And that it was not right for him to wear shoes to preach. He had such a conviction in that, and God blessed him in that. In fact, the last camp that he spoke at, the last camp he spoke at just a few weeks ago before he um, contracted COVID, he spoke to over 6,500 teenagers in one week. And out of that 6,500 teenagers, there was 457 who accepted Christ for the first time. And he's done that for over 20 years. So if you're okay with that, I'm actually going to take my shoes off this morning in memory of Wade because I think that's a cool thing. I'm not going to do this every week, but I'm going to preach shoeless today. I watched his memorial service yesterday, and everyone did that. But I want us to realize that when we talk about God's grace, we can't understand God's grace because God's infinite. God is vast. God is good. God is love. God is the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. God is holy. We don't deserve grace. Yet scripture tells us that God gives it to us freely. And in that grace, we are made alive. And so that is my ending point. In God's grace, we are made alive. So we talk a lot about grace, and, and especially during the Olympic times, we talk about grace because you might watch, watch gymnastics and you'll hear them say that, you know, this artist, this, this, this gymnast was graceful in her performance, or this artistic swimmer was full of grace, that they just float around and it's beautiful. And uh, this type of definition of grace would be simple elegance or refinement in movement. Grace can be defined as courteous goodwill. The runner accepted defeat with grace. He wasn't bitter that he lost the race. He accepted it with grace. Another definition for grace can be to honor or credit to someone or something by one's presence. Allison Felix completed her Olympic career this past weekend with uh, competing in five Olympics. And we could say that she, she graced us with the presence of her long career. So grace can be used in a lot of different ways. And if you actually take the word grace and you put it into spiritual terms, you actually begin to see that there's a whole bunch of different um, various kinds of grace that theologians identify. First off, you, we, we, there's, a, there's a, a type of grace called common grace that's found in, in Reformed theology that, that all the favor God shows to mankind is that is less than salvation. And, and the Wesleyans, uh, they teach a similar concept called prevenient grace. And these are big theological concepts that we can sit down and talk about. That's not what we're diving into today. What we're going to look at is special grace, divine grace, saving grace. The saving grace that is effectual and irresistible because it's sovereignly ordered by God. Because we said God is sovereign. He's over all. 
Grace that can only come from God. Listen to some of these quotes about grace. J. Gresham Machen says, The very center and core of the whole Bible is the doctrine of the grace of God. J.I. Packer says the, <clears throat> that grace is simply God's love demonstrated towards those who deserve the opposite. God's grace is his gift giving life, and the gift is himself. So we have to identify that God is grace if the gift is himself, God is grace. Exodus 34, 6 says, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. So in order for us to fully understand grace, we need to look at what Scripture says about it. So we're going to look at the book of Ephesians. Ephesians chapter 2. And and. The book of Ephesians is written to the church at Ephesus. And Ephesus is probably one of the most well-known churches of the early church. It's mentioned several times throughout Scripture. Uh, we find it um, in, in <clears throat> the book of Ephesians, the letter actually written to them. There's actually, uh, in Acts, Paul and Timothy are staying in Ephesus. The letter to 1 Timothy is particularly written to Timothy while he's serving at Ephesus. And then in the book of Revelation, Ephesus is actually one of the seven churches that a letter is written to. And so, to me, when I read this and I see that Ephesus is mentioned so many times, there's something very, very special and important for this church. And I think there's something very, very special and important for us in that. So in Ephesians, uh, in Ephesians chapter 2, Paul is writing this letter to the Ephesians to encourage them, to encourage them in their walk, to to show that when they place their faith in Jesus, they find spiritual blessings. And so he mentions in chapter 1, he kind of walks through it, and then in chapter 2, he begins to go through this thing because people are starting to understand that, or starting to to teach and and work and move that that you've got to do things to get to heaven. A works-based theology. And, and, and Paul wants to clear that up. And so in chapter 2, he begins to speak specifically about grace. And specifically about grace through faith. And he starts in verse 1, and he goes in verse 1 through 3, and he tells us that before we experience God's grace, we are spiritually dead. Every single one of us, before we experience God's grace, we are dead. Verse 1. Once you were dead because of your disobedience and your many sins. You used to live in sin just like the rest of the world, obeying the devil, the commander of the powers in the unseen world. He is a spirit at work in the hearts of those who refuse to obey God. All of us used to live that way, following the passionate desires and inclinations of our sinful nature. By our very nature, we were subject to God's anger, just like everyone else, just like the rest of mankind. He starts off that chapter, you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the ways of this world. So before we become a believer, before we experience this life-changing salvation that's only available through Jesus Christ, we're dead. We are dead. Romans 6.23 says, for the wages of sin is death, and that death creates a separation and an alienation. And we see this all throughout the Old Testament. 
where there are times that the Israelites are walking in tune with God. And then they quit paying attention to what God is directing them to, and they get, they get out, of, out of the path. They go a different way. They start acting on their own. They're not following God's direction. And so God exiles them. God, God, the, the, the relationship is severed. It's, it's broken. And we see this multiple times because of their sin. And then God will reconcile and redeem and restore. And think about your relationships. Think about when you get into an argument with your spouse or with your children. What that feels like afterwards. And in that argument, you might say something hurtful, something you didn't mean, but something you just got caught up in the moment and you said. You've created a separation. There's a separation that's felt in that relationship. You're not as close as you once was, as you once were. Your relationship needs repair. And it's damaged, that relationship is damaged and cannot be repaired until someone, one of you, usually the offended person, brings grace. They bring grace and forgiveness. While that relationship wasn't completely dead, sometimes it feels like it's completely dead because you've done something so horrible and so wrong over and over and over again that you just continue to drive a wedge between you and that other person and you feel like it's dead. And then that person says, I forgive you. And they show you undeserved grace and mercy. You want to see a biblical symbol of this, a biblical illustration of this, read the book of Hosea. And you will see a wedge continually driven between Hosea and Gomer and then grace given. But while those relationships aren't completely dead, before we know God, it is we are spiritually dead. Before we know Christ, we are spiritually dead. And we live, as verse 2 says, according to the ways of the world. We live in sin. And remember Romans 6.23 says the wages of sin is death. We're spiritually dead. We're subject to God's wrath. And that wrath comes in two ways. And I think this is really important for us to remember. Because sometimes when consequences don't happen immediately, we think we're scot-free, right? And so this wrath comes in two ways. First off is a cause and effect consequence. Cause and effect consequence. I'm going to go back to when I was a teenager and I'm, I'm in school and I, and I didn't do my homework and so I copied somebody pa- somebody's paper and I get caught. I automatically get an F on that grade. That's a cause and effect consequence. As we get older in life, that can be a little bit harsher. We defraud somebody or we cheat somebody out of money. They could bring physical harm to us. We could end up in prison. There's cause and effect consequences to that. We could lose our jobs. The second type of judgment that comes, the second type of wrath that comes is divine judgment. And this is a little harder to see, and this is not necessarily as immediate. And so when we don't have a cause and effect, relation, cause and effect consequence, and we start to get past the thing that we've done, we think we're scot-free. And divine judgment comes in. And like I said, this is hard to see, but, it's easy, but it can be seen. If you look at Acts chapter 5, verse 5, we see this with Ananias. 
It says, when Ananias heard this, he fell down and died. He was divinely judged. Remember, he had been dishonest. And he was, died immediately. Or spiritually dead, subject to God's wrath. And for someone who is not a believer, someone who might be sitting in this room today that has never said, Jesus, I believe that you died on the cross for my sins and I want to make you Lord and Savior of my life. When you hear this, it's pretty hopeless. It's pretty harsh. Because when we're separated from God and we don't have this, this eternal hope, when we don't have this, this, this relationship with him and the wages of sin is death, and we know that we hear these, these church people talk about eternal life in heaven, there's also eternal life in hell. Because if we don't know God and we don't accept Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior and place our faith in him, then we end up in hell. We spend eternity in hell. So Paul writes this here in verses 1 through 3, and he writes a picture of hopelessness. But that hopelessness is for those that are not believers, those that are not followers of the way. But then he goes into verse 4 through 10, and he tells us that when you accept Jesus Christ, when you accept God's grace, you gain spiritual life. It's the only way you can do it is before you're dead, and now you gain grace through God's mercy, and you gain spiritual life. When we find God's grace, we gain spiritual life. Look at verse 4. It says, but God is so rich in mercy, and he loves us so much that even though we were dead because of our sins, he gave us life when he raised Christ from the dead. And I love this in parentheses. It is only by God's grace that you have been saved. If you take anything from this today, it is that. It is only by God's grace that you have been saved. And it continues that it says, um, by grace you have been saved and raised us up from the dead along with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms because we are united with Christ Jesus. So God can point to us in all future ages as examples of the incredible wealth of his grace and kindness towards us as shown in all he has done for us who are united with Christ Jesus. God saved you by his grace when you believed. And you can't take credit for this. It is a gift from God. Salvation is not a reward for the good things we have done, so none of us can boast about it. For we are God's masterpiece. He has created us anew in Christ Jesus so we can do the good things he planned for us long ago. Grace is a gift. And it's only through grace that comes from faith in God that we receive salvation. We cannot work our way to heaven. We can't. Romans 6.23 says, For the wages of sin of death, but says, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Grace is a gift. And God is so in love with us that he gives himself to us. He gives us grace. And it makes us alive. Verse 5 says this. It says in verse 5, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace, he, you have been saved. Our sins that made us spiritually dead, but this grace makes us alive in Christ. And have you ever met somebody that's fully alive? We went back to school shopping this weekend, and that can make you feel dead. 
just the thought of it. Friday night, we were down in San Antonio, and we went to this bakery called Carlos Bakery. Anybody ever been to Carlos Bakery or watched Cake Boss on TV? That's what it is, right, Brindley? Cake Boss? Yeah, watch Cake Boss on TV. We'd never been there, so we got some, some stuff and, and took it back to our room, and, and, and Brindley had had this big piece of cake, I mean big piece of cake, and, uh, um, and she didn't eat all the icing, and yesterday morning, I woke up, and, and I was doing some study on my sermon and stuff, and, and, um, and there was this little plastic to-go container sitting there with icing. Anybody like icing? When it's sitting there and it's dark and there's no one else awake, it's very tempting, right? So I was like, hmm, I'm just going to try it. So I took one finger and just licked it, and then about five minutes later there was no icing left. (laughs) And then about 15 minutes later they all woke up, but trust me, I was woke up. I was jumping around that room. I was flying. I was alive in sugar. I say that in jest, but have you ever watched somebody come out from underneath the water in baptism? And they come up from that water and they breathe that first breath. And there's nothing saving about the water. There's nothing that saves them. But they are physically taking a first breath after telling the world, Jesus just gave me life. And the look on their face and the, the just sheer energy that comes from someone in that moment, that's being alive in Christ. God's grace does that. And then as he continues in, in, in chapter 2, um, Verse, verse 9 and 10, it tells us that he made us, we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Each one of us has something we are supposed to do for God. We are created in his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works. And that's where the works comes in. It's not that we do things to get to heaven, which so many people believe, that if I'm a good person, I can get to heaven. What it is, is because of God's grace and because of God's salvation, now we do the works that he has prepared us for. And when we do that, we get to the last thing. Is we move from being spiritually dead to being spiritually alive to now we are spiritually united. When we have that sin, for the wages of sin is death, there's a separation between us and God. There's a separation between us and God. And I'm not going to read all this scripture, but here in verse 11 through 22, you can read it. And it talks about how they were separated in verse 12. Remember that you were at the time separated from Christ. You were apart from Jesus. And it goes on, and also he's speaking to the Gentiles. The church of Ephesus is a, is a Gentile church, and he says that you, you were alienated from Christ, separated from Christ. You were alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise. You weren't a part of the chosen people. You could become Jewish, but you weren't part of the chosen people. You had to learn these things. Then it continues, says, having no hope and without God in the world. No hope and without God in the world. You're separated from Christ. You're excluded from citizenship in Israel. You're foreigners to the covenants of the promise. You're without hope and without God. 
But in verse 13, God, God does not leave them in this hopeless condition. God's grace unites us with God, and it unites us with other believers. That's why we have a faith family. When we come together as a church to celebrate and worship, it's because we are united in a common bond. I was in a fraternity, a Christian fraternity called Brothers Under Christ, and it was our, 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 our simple thing was, a group of Christian men united by the common bond of Jesus Christ. That was our unification, was we are believers. We are united by the common bond of Jesus Christ. And when you're not a believer, before you place your faith in Jesus, coming to church might feel awkward. You might not feel like you belong. You don't understand the things that are going on. You don't understand how someone can worship something they can't see, how they can smile even when their life stinks. And it's reminding me, I told you a story a couple weeks ago going to the Hindu temple in Toronto. And I didn't understand how they could worship a doll. Or when I went to the Sikh Gurdwara, how they could worship a book. I didn't understand it because I wasn't part of them. I wasn't unified with them. I was separated. I was apart. I come to church and I worship God freely and I understand why other people put their faith in Jesus Christ. Because we are together. We are unified. We understand grace and that God is grace and it takes our mind from today and it focuses it on heaven. C.S. Lewis in his book Mere Christianity says this, Hope is one of the theological virtues. This means that a continual looking forward to the eternal world is not, as some modern people think, a form of escapism or wishful thinking, but one of the things a Christian is meant to do. It does not mean that we are to leave the present world as it is. If you read history, you will find that the Christians who did the most for the present world were just those who thought most of the next. The apostles who brought about on foot the conversion of the Roman Empire the great men who built up the Middle Ages, the English evangelicals who abolished the slave trade, all left their mark on earth precisely because their minds were occupied with heaven. It is since Christians have largely ceased to think of the other world that they have become so ineffective at this. Think about that. C.S. Lewis is saying this over 70 years ago. Christians have largely ceased to think of the other world. They've ceased to think of heaven, and they've become so ineffective at changing the world because of it. This is the last quote I want you to hear. Aim at heaven, and you get earth thrown in. Aim at earth, and you'll get neither. When we are spiritually unified in Christ, we understand God's grace that we are nothing without Jesus. And that when we understand that because of God's grace, this free gift, we have eternal life in him, and we will get to spend eternity in heaven, we put our minds on heaven. And that's when we aim at heaven and we get earth thrown in. When we lose sight of that, we aim at earth and we get nothing. I shared with you about Gerald, Brad, and Wade and what they meant to my life. But what I want you to know is that because they meant so much to my life, they mean a lot to your life as well. 
And each one of us has somebody in their life that has meant something to you because they understood that heaven is bigger than earth. That God is bigger than any problem that we have. And they shared that with you. And they lived their life in that way. And because of that, they are the reason we understand God's grace a little bit more. Gerald Braden Wade exuded that when you aim at heaven, you get earth thrown in. But there's one person on earth that when they focused on heaven, they changed eternity forever. And that's Jesus Christ. When he willingly laid down his life for your sin, for the forgiveness of your sin, so that in his death it might be defeated, and by him raising from the dead, we gain eternity with him. We're united with him forever. Salvation comes from the death, burial, resurrection of Jesus Christ when we put our faith in that. And it's in that that we celebrate and remember that sacrifice through the Lord's Supper. We commonly call it the Lord's Supper, but it's also commonly called communion because we are not only communing as a faith family together to take this meal together, but we are in communion with God. We're remembering the sacrifice that he made for our life, for, for us, by sacrificing his son on the cross, for his body to be broken and his blood to be shed. So I want you to take a moment and in the seat in front of you, you'll find little cups. They're prepackaged so we can stay as safe as possible. They're prepackaged, and you'll find the cracker and the juice. And in a moment, we will take this together, but I want you to take it. And if there's not enough in your pew, just raise your hand, and one of our, our deacons will, will make sure you have one. But I want you to take a few moments, and I want you to think about the grace that God has shown you. And I want you to think about people in your life that God has used to show you that grace. It might be a teacher. It might be a parent, a grandparent, an aunt or uncle. It might be a coworker or just a friend. But I want you to take this moment and remember the grace they showed you because they understood the grace that God had given them. Father, we thank you for those that have come before us to show us grace from all walks of life. But most importantly, we thank you for the grace that you've shown us, the undeserved grace that comes in 
forgiveness that comes in your mercy, that comes in your sacrifice of your son. The, the sacrifice of your son coming to live as a human, fully man yet fully divine, to live perfect, blameless, sinless life. To be unjustly charged, convicted, and crucified for my sin. And as he died and was placed in that tomb and all hope was lost, you had a plan. A plan of redemption and of restoration. A plan that three days later he was going to come alive and raise from the dead so that we might gain life in him. Father, we thank you for that grace. 1 Corinthians eleven twenty three, twenty four 24 says, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And then continues in verse 25. It says, In the same way also he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So we're going to have a moment of reflection and response. I'm going to ask you to stand. The band's going to come up and we're going to sing, sing a song. And if you would like to pray, the altar is open.